It's a clown show. It's a complete it's a clown show, you know, with hostages. And uh, the way that the press coverage has been, you know, both sided on this is absolutely depressing as hell to me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I am talking with Dan Frumkin, the founder of Presswatch. Uh, Dan has, for many, many years now, done great accountability work, uh, primarily focused at the written political press, the New York Times and the Washington Post, Politico, outlets like that. Um, And I really appreciate his expertise and the work he does holding those outlets accountable, because obviously a big focus of my work is right wing media. I cover a lot of Fox News and Newsmax, OAN, Trump World, things like that. And Dan, I think, provides a really interesting supplement, an important supplement to what I do and what other people like me do at Press Watch, where he focuses a lot on the elite print outlets and ways in which they're falling short and occasionally doing a good job. But, you know, accountability, uh, media criticism often focuses on things that outlets like that can do better. So Dan and I talk about the unique challenges presented by Trump, you know, going back to 2016 and continuing to the present day how we think coverage of Trump's third campaign is going so far. Uh, The problem with fact-checking, especially in this era of Trump and weaponized lying that Republicans like to do, Uh, how coverage of the Trump-DeSantis horse race kind of misses the bigger picture of the fact that these two very flawed and dangerous candidates are the front-runners to begin with, the elite press's addiction to negative coverage of President Biden, and a whole lot more. Uh, Next week on the podcast, I will be talking with Oliver Willis, another legend of online progressive journalism. And so I'm really looking forward to talking with Oliver. And like this episode, that episode next week will drop late Wednesday. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Aaron Rupar show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are more of a video podcast person, obviously, I post the footage of all of these interviews that I do on my YouTube page. So please subscribe there if you haven't and leave positive reviews wherever you can. And please share the show if you enjoy it. And, uh, you know, other people in your life who are into progressive media, into politics, uh, please spread the word because I am looking to grow the show as much as I can. So without further ado, let's get to my interview with Dan. Welcome, everyone, to the Aaron Rupar Show. I'm thrilled today to have Dan Frumkin on with me. Dan is the founder of Press Watch, which does really good accountability work about the mainstream press. And uh, one of the things I find particularly valuable about Press Watch is that you know, I think sometimes right-wing media, um, it's important to do accountability work about the Fox Newses and Newsmaxes of the world, but it can kind of feel like low-hanging fruit sometimes. And I think the work that Dan does holding outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post, other outlets of that ilk, uh, the elite ones accountable, um, is a little bit more difficult to do, but also very important because uh, sometimes their failings can be a little more subtle than the propaganda you might see on Fox. So, uh, Dan, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. And I, I consider you a, a, a national treasure. Uh, oh, gee. I think it's the first <laughs> time anybody's ever said that to me. So uh, that, that's high praise. I really appreciate that because you're, you're kind of an OG in this space of uh, doing accountability work. And I think I actually mentioned we did a Q&A with Dan for public notice, my newsletter back in December. And I mentioned uh, writing the top of that 
that I feel like you are kind of the successor to the Eric Bollert legacy of doing, you know, kind of hard hitting mainstream media accountability work. So, um, you know, from, from my standpoint, that's high praise because I really enjoyed okay. Eric's work yeah. and uh, you've kind of picked up the baton uh, from him in that area. So um, you obviously have spent a lot of time, you know, at the Washington Post um, before founding uh, Press Watch and um, a lot of your the work that you do, you know, a lot of us writing and talking about politics these days, it has a lot to do with Trump, obviously, because Trump, you know, presents a lot of unique challenges to reporters, um, the weaponized lying, the gaslighting. It's a little bit different, or at least on a different level than other politicians we've encountered in modern American history. Not unique entirely, but I would say, you know, on a different scale. And drawing from your background at The Post and some of the work that you do for Press Watch, I know this is a very broad question, but if you were back at an outlet like The Post managing their political coverage heading into 2024, how would you approach covering Trump's campaign? What would be kind of the guardrails if you were trying to instruct reporters or kind of guide them to doing the type of coverage of a campaign like the one Trump is running that you think would be responsible and accountable? Uh, how would you oversee that? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, what I, the, the the thing I would do first is say that this this sort of knee-jerk uh, desire to not take sides politically needs to be put aside here because Trump is not just a political story. It's not just a question of of what his politics are. The man is is an extraordinary con man. He's everything that you write about Trump needs to be put in the context of that he is running a con on the American people and that the media is enabling him if it just treats him more or less like a normal politician. Or even if it, you know, which it does nowadays, says this is a lie, this is not true, this is a conspiracy theory, but fundamentally still still establishes him in, in this space as a reasonable political candidate when what he is 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 a con man. He's he's running a, a very elaborate con, and the more attention you give him without putting it in that context, the more you're enabling him. Yeah, and I think related to this is one of the most recent posts on your site uh, where you were kind of taking aim at a uh, fact check that the New York Times did about some of the comments Trump has made linking uh, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, with George Soros. And obviously, as you get into in your piece, there is a high degree of anti-Semitism um, involved in some of these attacks on Bragg that people like Trump and other Republicans make. But I think this is kind of consistent with, with what you were just saying, that mm -hmm. in doing kind of a serious fact check um, of these claims, and it, I don't have it right in front of me. I can't remember exactly what the the headline of the Times' fact check was, but it was kind of indulging these claims that Trump was making as like a serious you know, political candidate, something that they would say. And almost by giving it that sort of treatment, you know, instead of saying that, hey, this is a anti-Semitic dog whistle and kind of dismissing it out of hand by really you know, applying the sort of critical scrutiny that you would to, you know, say something that Biden would say about a budget proposal. Um, you know, it's almost like a category error with Trump. And so, right. you know, maybe right. that's a kind of a good, you know, a good place to take this conversation is, is kind of your broader critique of fact checking and particularly how that applies to Trump. Because I do think that, you know, when outlets like the Times or the Post, when they do these fact checks of some of the crazy stuff that Trump says, or in sometimes really, in some cases, very harmful and incendiary, incendiary things that he says, um, you know, just by by applying that sort of of uh, scrutiny to his claims, it um, kind of validates him. 
Right. Well, I have I have a real problem with fact checking because I think it's it's completely anachronistic uh, in our current age. And um, I think what's significant. Uh, yes, you need to call out the lies. Absolutely. But what's even more significant right now is what I call the why behind the lie. I have a column I wrote called, you know, the why behind the lie. And and that that's what matters. It's not just that he's lying. It's why is he lying? And or why are they lying? And uh, it's pretty obvious. I mean, any reporter knows what they're why they're lying. They're lying because they're trying to create racial resentment and grievance and try to 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 distract from their their own uh, problems. And I mean, it, it's it's astonishing how s- much self-censorship goes on. Uh, and they produce these lame things like fact checks and, and you know, articles where they mention that he did said something that wasn't true. When when what's at issue is is the fundamental deset. The, you know, deceit, the goal of this person, which is to to re- regain power and punish his enemies, make money um, and divide the country. I mean, it, the divisions in this country are, I mean, I, you know, I used to be optimistic, right, about where we were going. <laughs> Many of us were, yeah. I mean, I'm an old guy now, but, you know, I grew up, you know, back in that time when I felt like the arc, you know, was going in the right way. And and Trump has disrupted that in a way that's astonishing. And there's so much horrible, you know, he's, he's enabled all this kind of toxic garbage to spew into our national discourse. And and I mean, none of none of that is reflected in how the press covers this. They 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 feel they're very bold when they say that he'd lied about something, but fundamentally they treat this like normal politics. And and part of it is because I think they want uh, it's not just they don't want to take sides; it's that they want there to be a contest because then they, that's that's exciting to cover. Mm-hmm. They get more attention. Did you think? Um... Maybe to back up a step here. So you know, we remember in 2016, the, the first Trump campaign and some of the egregious press errors from that, such as, you know, covering Trump's empty lectern instead of major speeches that Hillary Clinton was delivering or, you know, the obsessive coverage of her emails. Um, I thought personally that some of the 2020 coverage and, you know, you have to paint with kind of a broad brush here, you know, unless we're going to talk about specific stories, but. I thought that in 2020, things got a little bit better where, you know, especially when it came to Trump's lying about male voting and his efforts to undermine elections even before January 6th, um, it felt like, you know, elite outlets were pulling fewer punches and more willing to kind of call him out for that stuff. Was that kind of your sense as well, that there was some improvement from 2016 to 2020? And what are your expectations for 2024? I mean, do you think it's reasonable to hold you know elite outlets to a little bit higher standard now that we we have you know ample experience of covering trump or um you know maybe some of the coverage of the early stages of trump's campaign is uh making you a little bit more pessimistic <laughs> yeah all those things <laughs> yeah, all, yeah. <laughs> um, i i mean <clears throat> sure the coverage of trump got a lot more uh brutal and realistic as 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 the facts emerged about what he was doing and as I mean, my God, he's he's left insurrection. I mean, you know, even 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 the the most you know uh, affable don't take sides reporter has got to recognize that that's a little bit unusual. And so they yeah they 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 didn't pull all their punches. How could they have? Um, but they still pulled more than you'd think. And um, and the coverage of the current race, you know, I think shows all these signs of it. Uh, they are um, writing. As if it's normal that Trump is the front runner, 
that that this this con man can be perpetuating this con it, it, it's astonishing and the, and and even more concerning to me uh is the coverage of Ron DeSantis who um you know they're focusing now on whether he's or not he's a serious candidate and I have no speculation about that but the fact is the man's record it couldn't be clearer that he is you know a a fascist that he that he he accumulates power and uses it to punish his enemies and to achieve his 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 personal and political goals i mean this is the, the way that he 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 has been you know taking on disney attacking disney that for the gall of saying that you know people should be allowed to say gay um and and that he has uh tried to take over you know parts of the state government and that he is censoring teachers and university professors i mean this is this is this is not this this is not normal and yet the the news organizations all write about him as sort of an interesting case study oh look there was this article in the post uh last, yesterday about how you know how he's accumulated power and all of the all of the obvious conclusions about him were relegated to critics say mm-hmm. um and and you know you can read the top 10 paragraphs and not realize the guy is is a you know, is 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 a is a little caudillo. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I I feel like uh, a few little things changed, but the fundamental structure, which is that uh, they were a sort of enabling a lie, uh, continues. And I'm I'm deeply depressed. My as far as what I'm you know what I expect, I I expect. I don't expect any progress. I don't see any signs of it. The people who are in charge of the news organizations have see see no need to change course. That they, they, you know, I'd love to just ask them: Do you really think you you have helped create an informed American public? Uh, and if not, uh, then what are you going to do about it? They just yeah. keep doing the same stuff over and over again. Well, and I know that your work, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I mean, you focus a bit more on written media. I mean, it seems like a lot of your stuff takes aim yes. at New York Times, Washington Post. One thing that I found to be disconcerting quite recently, although I understand why this happened, but the, the coverage of Trump's indictment and his arraignment, his processing in Manhattan, um, you probably, you know, just following on Twitter, saw some of this where, you know, they had a helicopter that was following Trump's motorcade from Mar-a-Lago <laughs> to the Palm Beach airport. And then as, they actually even had a camera on his flight as it took off and landed. And, um, you know, is every movement from leaving right. Mar-a-Lago to arriving at Trump Tower uh, was covered. And, you know, the the reality, whether we like it or not, is that Trump, at least for the, the cable networks, is ratings gold. I mean, we saw this during his presidency where it was all Trump all the time. And there was, you know, very obvious incentives for that. And especially when you're talking about a network like CNN that is kind of starving for ratings at this point where, you know, they really have to be worried about that. Um, you know, it's like the first opportunity they had to kind of revert to all Trump all the time. They jumped on it. And, you know, granted, it's unprecedented for a former president to be indicted. And so I get it to a point. But, you know, if that's what we're in for um, as the campaign heats up, you know, I think that'll be there'll be a lot of similarities between 2024 and 2016 yeah no that was a very very uh depressing sign of of the media's continued you know uh, ability to be manipulated by by trump on the other hand though at least it wasn't him talking the whole time right? yeah <laughs> so but but no it, it you're absolutely right it, it exposed the dynamic that this guy is catnip 
uh, especially for cable news. Um, and as you said, I mean, CNN's in a very interesting position. They're 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 trying desperately to find some way to to make themselves uh, more attractive again. And I worry that they'll uh, they'll do more of this stuff. Yeah. Why do you think it's tough for? elite outlets like the Times and the Post to take more of the structural standpoint that you're alluding to where, you know, instead of covering the horse race, you kind of look at why, you know, the two leading horses are DeSantis and Trump and, you know, kind of cover that as more of a problem, the problem that it is rather than stripping that context. I mean, is it just as simple as not wanting to offend Republicans or conservative readers? Um, You know, what's your view on that? I think, I mean, having worked, you know, in and around newsrooms a lot of my life, uh, I can tell you that the external uh, pressures are not really the issue in most newsrooms. It's it's internal. It's all self-reinforcing. And uh, it's also very, very defensive. And so to answer your question, I think part of the reason they don't do that is because they'd have to admit that they haven't done it in the past. And that was a mistake. Um, so they just keep doing what they've always been doing because that's what uh, they're, you know, that's what that that's the practice that they defend. And they and and you know, after Trump's election, uh, there should have been you know an incredible come to Jesus moment in the news 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 you know industry. Um, to say how did we allow this to happen? How did how did we fail? And and it's not, not a question of politics. How do we allow misinformation and and somebody who 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 lies uh, about everything to 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 reach this kind of pinnacle? And and let's and obviously what we're doing isn't working. Um, but they won't admit that. They won't admit that what they're doing isn't working. Um, and so you have a you passing on. You know there was there seemed like there were two potential opportunities that when both the New York Times and the Washington Post replaced their editors over the last few years. But they've both been replaced with people who are still very much uh, of the same cloth. And, you know, a newsroom works not because, you know, somebody is yelling at it from the outside, but because you do what you what your editor wants you to do. And uh, so there's an incredible uh, pressure within a newsroom to to conform. And and uh, and the stars are the ones who conform the best. So there's this very little appetite in a newsroom to do things differently. And even though, you know. There's a crying need for that. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of on this same topic, the the lack of self-reflection that outlets can have. Um, it was almost a year ago now that you wrote a piece um, that I came back across last night when I was prepping for this and kind of looking at some of the things that you've written about Biden coverage, about mm-hmm. the negative framing that major outlets were doing on economic stories and how this actually, you know, it didn't just lead to readers being dour about the economy it actually led to them being misinformed where um you know i believe there you know was polling research that was on asking people you know basically things like you know pertaining to the unemployment rate pertaining to inflation and when people were asked you know to kind of identify basic facts about the macro economy they were getting that wrong and you know the point of your column was that there should be some self-reflection from journalists about why people are misinformed and some Correction rather than, you know, kind of covering people's misperceptions as a news story unto itself and sort of absolving themselves from any blame in the fact that, you know, people seem to be getting facts (laughs) about the economy wrong. So, you know, it's been about a year. Um, There was a lot, you know, just me running a newsletter and interacting with a lot of readers. There was a lot of frustration of 
the coverage of Biden as it pertained to like the Afghanistan withdrawal and as it pertained to inflation. I've noticed a little bit less of that recently, and I'm not sure, you know, Biden has been keeping a little bit lower profile. It seems like the last, you know, couple months as the news cycle has been consumed by Trump stuff again with his indictment, with the horse race of 2024. But, you know, I guess just big picture, how do you think coverage of Biden has gone? Um, you know, Biden being a, a very normal president coming on the heels of an extremely abnormal one. And, you know, I think there have been temptations that elite outlets and reporters have fallen into to kind of equivocate between Trump and Biden or to absolve Trump of blame for problems that he played a large role in creating that Biden is trying to deal with. But, you know, what's your view on that? Do you think that um, the coverage of Biden has broadly fallen short? Has it improved? What, What are your thoughts? Well, I think I think, you know, the obvious issue was that, again, the internal pressure in newsrooms was to find fault with Biden so that they wouldn't look like they were cheerleading for him. Um, and and so they have. Um, and it also dovetails with certain other sort of uh, newsroom, uh, you know, truths, you know, the, the mythology that 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 uh, that deficits are a problem, that that only you know, that serious people want to uh, want to. Uh, attack the deficit and so on. So, so what you have is a situation where uh, anything that anything they can blame Biden for, they do, and uh, and and so yes, the coverage of the economy is kind of amazing, and it's always interesting to watch watch how different outfits uh, cover certain news releases. You know, when when the jobs rate jobs numbers come in. Is it is it good news? Is it bad news? It's almost always bad news for Biden. <laughs> yeah. Lately, the news has been so good that they've been having a harder time doing that. Um, well, but, even, but when it, even when it's good, sometimes it's bad because then, right. it, you know, the market doesn't like it because it, it suggests that inflation might continue. Anyway, yeah. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. If if job numbers are good, then, then you know, we're, we're heading into uh, an inflationary cycle. Um, and if they're bad, then we're already in a recession. Um, you know, it's just... Yeah. It, it and and inflation is always a problem. So uh, it's interesting. Just in the last few weeks, I've seen a little bit less uh, less of that. A little bit more coverage acknowledging that the Biden economy is actually doing astonishingly well. Um, even the Economist had a big piece the other day about how the Biden economy is doing astonishingly well and America is doing extremely well. It is not that is not, however, the the dominant narrative still and yet. And on, on Afghanistan, yeah, I mean. Uh, the you know the reality is getting out of afghanistan was never going to be easy and it was something that had to be done and um but reporters you know saw this as an occasion to jump on biden and and all and all of a sudden you know say well he's he's now you know a loser <laughs> yeah and that kind of coincided i mean it's a little bit of a chicken and egg but late 2021 was when his approval ratings really started to slide. Oh yeah. And um, you know, there, there was a, a very controversial piece in the Washington post, I think by Dana Mil- Milbank, I believe his last name is pronounced where um, he, you know, he presented some research with data, you know, that, that negative framing of stories was impacting Biden's approval rating. And and I, I did see some controversy as to how authoritative his actual research was on that. But um, you know, that, that did, you know, Regardless of the causality, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal and some of the coverage surrounding that did coincide. And there was inflation, too. But with Biden's approval ratings really tanking in late 2021 and, you know, that had impacts in the 2022 midterms as well. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, we talked with you for the newsletter in December, just before, obviously, the new Congress began. 
And I just want to read a couple sentences. I thought this, you know, was kind of a, a prescient comment that you made. And I want to kind of circle back to see how you think things are going. But you said um, on the topic of the new Republican House, quote, the other thing I'm worried about is that the press will go back to just treating politics like a fight between two parties, both of which have a reasonably similar connection to reality and plausible hopes to run the country. They have not pointed out that the Republican Party has no agenda at this point, but to obstruct the government and flood the zone with shit. To the extent that they have an agenda, it's possibly to hold the global economy hostage to force Biden to take money away from seniors and poor people, which is basically a way of reducing the burden of taxes on the rich, end quote. So, you know, here we are, uh, what, four months later. Um, how do you think coverage of this Republican House is going? Well, I think it's been absolutely disastrous when it comes to the debt ceiling. That's for sure. I mean, this the 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 media has completely bought into this notion that there is, you know, an actual debate to be had right now over over which direction you know what the fiscal direction of the country is um when the, the debt ceiling is a completely uh normal thing to increase when anybody who's interested in governing is in power what the republicans have done is they've, they've completely weaponized this really stupid technical little thing and uh and and are basically planning to hold everything hostage uh for a bunch of demands they can't even agree on what the hell they should be um, and the press is taking this so seriously. They're being so, you know, there, there's a, a story in the New York Times, I think it was the other day, basically saying, oh, this sets up a, you know, a terrible fiscal debate, you know, just as the presidential election is heating up. Like, okay, this is, this is complete baloney. This is, this is a Republican stunt. Um, and, and so far, at least, you know, the, the Democrats in the White House have been adamant, saying we're not going to negotiate. But for months, you've been reading about, oh, the negotiations are coming, negotiations are coming. I've been having a, an ongoing Twitter spat with Michael Shear at the Washington Post, where he wrote, oh, you know, McCarthy and Biden are getting ready to negotiate. I'm like, the hell they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they, they they negotiate like a hostage taker would negotiate with, uh, you know, police or something like that. And and. I think and that Democrats, the, for good yeah, reason, have yeah. not have 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 you know are saying we not this is not an appropriate time to talk about this stuff. Let's sure let's talk about the budget, but it, it's a clown show. It's a complete it's a clown show, you know, with hostages and uh, the way that the press coverage has been, you know, both sided on this is absolutely depressing as hell to me. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the the point we've circled back to a few times, which is that, you know, it's important for journalists to kind of zoom out and look at why things are happening, not just that they're happening or, you know, conveying what's happening. It's also, you know, why is this happening? And there's really no reason with the debt ceiling, you know, th there's no reason for the hostage taking. Um, you know, it's, it's as irrational as any other form of hostage taking. And it'd be nice if, you know, that was called out a little bit more often, but, um, you know, then well, that's that again, of, again, yeah. that it's not, I don't think the reporters are being evil. Think about the yeah. incentive structures. I mean, it's a lot easier to write about what happened yesterday than it is to write about what happened yesterday in context. And you're much less likely to get in trouble with your editors and you're much less likely to get in trouble with your sources. So the end result is this piece that basically fails to inform the public and what's really going on, uh, but meets the needs of the newsroom. Well, we've done a lot of criticism. Um, I thought it'd be constructive to end on a, you know, I guess a more constructive note to use that word twice in one sentence. Um, are there any outlets or specific journalists out there that you think are doing really good work? I mean, obviously you do really good work in the area of criticism, but in terms of actually reporting the news, um, you know, if listeners or viewers of this want to, 
you know, have some recommendations in terms of where they can go, uh, where would you send them? Well, first of all, I mean, part of the reason I concentrate so much on the Washington Post, and the New York Times is not just because of their influence, but because they also are, are great newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough love. And the fact is that even as they do the possibly the worst political coverage you know, of all time, they're also probably doing the best investigative coverage of all time. I mean, their investigative staffs are fantastic. And, you know, I don't I can't imagine what it must be like for them to have to read the crap that their political, you know, the star political reporters are pushing out every day. But they do great work on any number of issues. The huge series The New York Times just did on, on migrant children labor. I mean, there's terrific investigative work being done by all the major news organizations that I criticize for bad political coverage. Um, you know, other than that, though, I mean, the Internet is a, is a wild and, and beautiful place. I mean, I, I survive in part by not just looking at the usual sources, but looking, I, I use Twitter to use to sort of see what else, what uh, my people I like are, are reading or people I don't like are reading. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think uh, Mother Jones has certainly come, come out of this looking very validated and very strong. The nation uh, in media criticism, uh, CJR does some good, very good stuff as well as some very bad stuff. But I mean, there, there is great journalism out there and, and, um, just like at the local level where local newspapers are being so devastated, there are still great local journalism being done uh, when it can. So, uh, I mean, I still, I still think it's a great profession. I did. I, I find that the political reporting is a uniquely bleak spot. Yeah. And just, just to circle back, maybe a, a closing question here in, in your experience, when you were at the post and you know, you've, you've, like you said, you've been in and around newsrooms, most of your career, do you think that there was something specifically about Trump that kind of made political journalism so dicey or, you know, introduced a lot of these challenges that we've been talking about with framing and just how to present stories? Or did you notice these things? Maybe, you know, we could obviously go back to WMD and um, the, the coverage of the Iraq war, the run up to it. I mean, there are obviously a, a lot of problems with that, too. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm kind of answering my, my own question that these are more, you know, kind of deep seated issues than ones that are kind of a creation of this Trump era that we're in right now. Right. Well, and both can be true. I mean, the 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 reality is that, uh, you know, the Republican Party basically went off the rails when when McCain picked Sarah Palin um, and uh, the press has sort of averted its eyes from this lunacy uh, ever since then. Um, and obviously was very susceptible to uh, authoritarian uh, drum beating by the George W. Bush administration. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the press... The press has always had problems. I think Trump added to this phenomenon in two ways. One, nobody's ever lied as much as he has about everything. I mean, that's, and the other, he's just, he's just amazing. He's an amazing figure, uh, you know, born of reality TV. You can't take your eyes off of him. If you're a news guy, you're just going like, oh my God, I can't believe he just said. Um, And, and so, so he basically, you know, realized that he could completely out outplay them, uh, and and he did, but they were already you know very bad at the game. Yeah, well, and we have <laughs> uh, you know what uh, eighteen more months at least of uh, Trump coverage to look forward to, and then you know after he loses to Biden again, uh, maybe he'll be the Republican nominee in twenty twenty eight for a, a fourth run. So uh, lots of fun things to look forward to, and. If you want to follow along with, uh, you know, all of Dan's insights about how things are going well and, and mostly not going well, uh, be sure to check out Press Watch. Uh, anything else you want to plug your Twitter handle uh, before we uh, log off here? Well, Press Watch is at PressWatchers.org. Um, and yeah, I, I, I still uh, 
tweet too much. So come, yeah. see, come see me at Frumkin. <laughs> Where are you going, uh, you know, as Twitter kind of circles a drain here? Are you on uh, any of the other platforms, Mastodon, I'm True trying, Social? You know, I've tried Mastodon and Post and so on. I don't know. It's been yeah. really bad. I mean, and, and, uh, and the ability to, I mean, Twitter was great for independent journalists to get attention. Yeah. Uh, because you know the the they can't don't have the bandwidth of the, the pipe of of the Washington Post, the New York Times, whatever, and it's I've, it's suffered tremendously. I and mean, traffic has gone way down, and uh, I can see my tweets are not you know reverberating like they used to. So uh, there's no there's no substitute so far. Yeah, the one thing I will say on that note, maybe this is kind of inside baseball for listeners, but I have noticed that uh, Substack Notes is really good for promoting. Um, published work. I, I know that you're obviously you're not on Substack. You have kind of your own your own site, but mm-hmm. um, I would just kind of toss that out there. Where I've noticed that when I post my newsletters on Substack Notes, it gets they get pretty good engagement, a lot of shares on there. So um, that's at least one platform where you know I've had I've had friends who who are not writers ask me if they should get on there, and I kind of tell them, you know, I don't think it's necessary unless you're looking to promote your own content but uh for someone like you it could be a good place to at least start cross-promoting your work a little bit and, and um getting it in front of the the eyeballs there because it's a pretty engaged audience people who read a lot of stuff like my newsletter and your and your website so um that's one kind of tip parting tip here on from from me thanks well call me later and tell, explain to me how to do that then okay <laughs> well thanks a lot for your time today dan really appreciate it thank you Aaron. That does it for today's episode of the Aaron Rupar Show. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also follow me on YouTube to watch the footage of the show each week. You can find me there at the Aaron Rupar Show. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to check out your feeds each week for a new installment of the show. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.